0: Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies.
1: Do you have a device that has been through a 510k clearance with the FDA? And if so, have you ever made a change? to that product. Sometimes when you make a change, it may require that you explore a new 510K submission, but certainly there is guidance from the FDA that can help you with that decision-making process. And on today's episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, Mike Drews and I talk about deciding what to do when you're changing a device that has received 510K clearance, so enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello, this is John Spear, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight.guru and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Today we are going to talk about 510Ks, but specifically really more into changes. What happens when you have a device that's been cleared via 510K and now you have a change? How, what do you do? What's required? My guest with me today is Mike Drews. Mike is the president of vascular sciences. Mike consults with FDA. He consults with Health Canada and other regulatory agencies all over the world. Mike also works with medical device companies, big and small, from coast to coast, all over the globe as well. So, Mike, welcome back to the program.
0: Thank you, John. Always a pleasure to speak with you and to to work with your audience.
1: Okay. Well, Mike, uh, let's see. We're mid late August, and I think it was just a couple of weeks ago, uh, maybe not even, that FDA came out with new draft guidance documents on this topic of change, changes to a device that has 510K clearance. I'm sure you read those right away.
0: <laughs> yes, John, FDA has put out a number of guidances in, in in this topic over the years, but the two most recent that uh, you're referring to came out just uh, on August 8th, as a matter of fact. Okay. The first called Deciding When to Submit a 510K for a Change to an Existing Medical Device, and the second, Deciding When to Submit a 510K for a Software Change. To an existing medical device we can provide links to these guidances on Absolutely. the website but i just want to stress that the original guidances that these are based on came out in 1997 and so nearly a decade later they were finalized and quite frankly the reason why this topic is so important to the medical device industry is because first of all it happens all the time obviously as you know the medical device development is very iterative as opposed to in the drug side of the world where it's really not. A company comes out with a drug and then they don't change anything about it. So one reason this is important is because it's iterative. But the second reason why it's important is I have so many examples of companies that I've worked with, as I'm sure you have as well, that have done this and have, quite frankly, screwed it up and have sometimes gotten into an awful lot of trouble. And so that's I thought we would use this opportunity to share with your audience some of our advice and some of our best practices as to how to avoid this.
1: Yeah, I think that's excellent. The one thing I want to clarify on the onset is these two new documents they're currently draft guidances. The 1997 document that you mentioned is still as far as I know still a an official guidance document release guidance document from FDA. So, how does Do you have any thoughts or comments about how I should evaluate or use released guidance document versus a draft guidance document, especially if they're on the same topic?
0: Well, that's a good question, John, and I apologize if I misspoke. You're exactly right. These last two guidances that came out just a couple of weeks ago are, in fact, still in draft form. But that brings us to another topic, perhaps the topic of yet another conversation in the future. (laughs) And that is the difference between a draft versus final guidance. I get calls from companies frequently, they've followed everything in a final guidance, and yet they're still having problems. And I often say to them, well, why would you assume that final means final? In my (laughs) opinion, there's absolutely no difference between a draft versus a final guidance. I don't care what is stamped across the front of it. Right. All of these documents, all guidance, all regulation in general should be thought of as a work in progress. Right. So bottom line, whether we call it draft or final, I think is really, quite frankly, semantics. Okay. What's more important is the content and, and the subject matter of what's
1: inside them. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's good. That's good. And and uh, here's what, one of the things, and we're going to jump into certainly the details, but I think here's, for me, one of the things that I, I thought was was interesting is that there's now a draft guidance for dealing with software changes. So I, I think that's new. I don't think there's been anything about that for, for at least that I'm aware of.
0: Well, there have been other guidances that have talked about software within them. You may, in fact, be right that this might be the first software-specific guidance. That I don't know. Yeah. But, but I guess more importantly, I look at it this way. If you understand the basic philosophy, the engineering, if you will, using, using regulatory logic, as I like to do and we've talked about before, mm-hmm. whether we're talking about changing a physical widget. Whether we're talking about changing the software inside of it or whether we're talking about even the manufacturing process that we use to make that product, managing that change and the kind of testing that we have to do in order to determine whether or not it might affect the safety, efficacy, performance, and so on of that change, that all is exactly the same. Right. So I really, it doesn't matter to me. I mean, I know this might sound a bit odd to, to many in your audience, but it really doesn't matter to me in, in terms of the nature of the change. The way I approach it is exactly the same.
1: Right, exactly. Let's jump into that a little bit. But So so the premise here is that I have a device, whether mechanical, hardware, software, it doesn't matter, but a device that has received 510k clearance, and now I'm making a change. I mean, it's it's going to happen. You, Every single medical device is going to have a change. It's somewhere along the way in its life cycle. So I guess now the big question is, I'm going to change something. What do I do about it? And why is that important that I keep track of those changes? And why does this guidance document and this draft guidance document, why why does that matter to me? So that's a
0: great question, John. Let's let's dig into that a little bit. So when a manufacturer makes a change, either to the physical design, either to the software or even to the manufacturing process, the company essentially has a couple of options in terms of how they can handle that change. One way to handle it is by simply keeping that information internal. In other words, doing what we call in the vernacular, a letter to file. Which, by the way, I'm dating myself. But sometimes people ask me where that phrase comes from. It's back in the olden times when we actually put paper <laughs> in file folders and three drawer three drawer file cabinets. Uh-huh. So we 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 do the testing, we do the documentation, and we don't send it out anywhere. You know, beyond our own organization, we simply put it in a letter to file. The other option is to take exactly that same information and package it slightly differently. In other words, instead of of putting it in a letter to file and putting it in our three-drawer file cabinet, we put it in another box, we call it a special 510K or perhaps a PMA supplement, and then we send it off to the FDA. The important thing for your audience to, to understand, and this is at least my approach, is that the information that we that, that goes into either of those approaches, whether it's letter to file or special 510K or PMA supplement, the information is exactly the same. The only thing that's different is what we do with it. And quite frankly, if I can go just a tiny bit further, the reason why sure. it's so important to, to our audience, John, is because what I really want to avoid is a scenario as follows. You make a change to your device. At some, you know, months in the future, a knock comes on your door. It's the FDA. They say, Hey, we noticed that you've changed your device. We don't remember you ever coming and talking to us about it. What the heck is going on? Right. I don't want to be in a situation where you sit, where we have to say, oh, gee, we forgot or worse. Mm -hmm. Oh, you, oh, oh, you caught us. Absolutely not. I want to be able to say, oh, welcome. Well, hello, Mr. and Mrs. FDA reviewer. Come on in, have a seat, get a cup of coffee. I don't know. Are we allowed to still give them coffee? I know.
1: No, they won't. You can offer, they won't take it. (laughs) But
0: the the important point is, let me pull out my letter to file. Let me uh, show you the analysis that we went through. Here's the change that we made. Here's why we made it. Here's the testing that we did to ensure that it does not affect safety, efficacy, performance. By the way, I'm not advocating that we ha- that we create a PhD dissertation here by any means. Right. It does not have to be a humongous task. Right. But there's got to be enough information in there to convince somebody that we've done our homework, we know what we're doing. And at the end of the day, we made a business decision. This is not simply a regulatory decision. This is a business decision that we decided that this particular change was not necessary to tell FDA or anybody else. I want to make it crystal clear that we're not forgetting, that we're not trying to hide anything, that we're not trying to take any shortcuts. It's just a matter of uh, what we do with this information. And by the way, if we can also, in our letter to file, put two or three examples of other companies that have made similar changes that have also not told the FDA, that would be icing on the cake. Worst case scenario. Worst case scenario in taking my approach is that FDA would say, Thank you for sharing all this information. We, you know, we appreciate what you've done. We think you should have come to us in the form of a special 510K. I will say, Fine, I'll take right. all this information out of my letter to file, I'll put it into my special 510K. You'll have it next week.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I think that's the key thing, Mike. I mean, I think the problem that a lot of companies are faced with is. When the FDA, uh, Mr. and Mrs. FDA uh, in, inspector shows up to re- say, hey, I noticed a change to your product. Show us, you know, I think you should have filed something. And the company's like, uh, yeah, no, we we decided we didn't need to do that. And they have no documentation to support that. So I think the key th- takeaways are it use these guidances. These guidances are really good because they you know the part that i love about the guidance document i mean there's all the, the the descriptive part the words that go along with it but the the parts that i really enjoy are these these the decision tree flowcharts that are included i think you know you can follow those those different paths if you're making this kind of change or this kind of change and you can just follow that decision tree lots of yes no questions i whenever i do a letter to file i like to include that information as well so that you know if fda shows up and says i want to I want to see your how you made that decision. I can use their guidance document, the FDA guidance document, show you know how I went through all of these different options and how I came to the conclusion that I did. In addition to the other uh, suggestions that you provided about uh, analyzing or providing uh, uh, information about maybe other competitor or similar types of products that have made same or similar kind of uh, kinds of changes in the marketplace too the key thing is to have an actual documented quote letter to file that uh, you can retrieve and that you can present and that you can show i think that's where companies mess up
0: i i agree and regrettably i see a lot of companies get in trouble and by the way some case, some situations, it doesn't happen often, but sometimes when companies screw this up, you uh, they find themselves not just dealing with the FDA, but also dealing with the FBI. Yeah. And let me tell you if, and I'm not trying to scare anybody. I'm really not. I'm just simply trying to illustrate how important this is truly high stakes bingo, as I like to call it. If you think it's difficult dealing with the FDA, the FBI, the Department of Justice, those folks don't
1: mess around. Uh, yeah, I, I don't imagine that they do, and and uh, they they all carry badges, and some of them carry guns. So. That's right.
0: <laughs> and just one comment I would make on your on the uh, uh, your advice to follow the flowcharts. These these guidance have flowcharts. You know, a lot of guidances have flowcharts, and I have absolutely no problem with people following them. But I would put a small caveat on that. Perhaps not so small. Recognize that a, fo- a flowchart is a starting point. It is not a stopping point. Right. I have a very good friend of mine who used to be a senior reviewer at FDA, no longer with the agency, but she has said publicly many times that every single flowchart that FDA has ever put out, every single one is wrong. <laughs> I don't go quite that far, but I very much understand what she means. The flowcharts are very limiting. Right. Um, it's a starting point. I get calls from companies. We followed the flowchart. We're still having problems. Well, why would you consider that to be a stopping point? Just right. yesterday, coincidentally, I was at FDA doing a pre-sub, and they were they asked us if we followed a particular flowchart, and we said, well, we tried to, but the flowchart would have taken us in the wrong direction. And we, in one of our backup slides, we were prepared for that question. Again, this is a topic of a different conversation, sure. but. But I was prepared for that question, and I showed them specifically, if we followed the FDA flowchart, that it would have taken us down the wrong path. And FDA said, yes, you're right. That makes sense. Thank you for not flo- following the flowchart in this particular case. Right. Right. So uh, I'm not saying, you know, don't follow the flowcharts, don't follow the regulation. I'm just simply saying, you know, use that as a starting point. But sure. at the end of the day, it's not a substitute for good engineering logic or regulatory logic or whatever you want absolutely. to call it.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So I think you know, one of the key things to understand is you know we, we we you and I have talked a lot about design controls and we've talked about you know once you get this clearance and now the product becomes uh, a released device and sold into the marketplace and manufactured and so on and 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 now on this topic we're we're getting into that post market types of activities you know these changes for whatever reasons and obviously going through the guidance using that to help determine what path I need to take, whether that's letter to file or a special 510K or a supplement or whatever. I think that obviously that's just good sound uh, engineering practices uh, as we've talked about. So what are some of the options and consequences? I mean, we talked about that special 510K. We've talked about about the supplement, PMA supplement briefly this morning, but are there other options that I need to be considering, and what happens if I don't? I mean, you, you mentioned the FDA may say, "Hey, uh, we don't agree. You need to do a, a special five ten k." You talked about the F- FBI possibly could get involved in some cases. Are there other things that that uh, we should be thinking about as far as the options and consequences on this particular topic?
0: Well, fun- it's a great question, John. Fundamentally, it comes down to given our situation because as you know the medical device industry is a very broad industry and it's very difficult to give advice in in very general terms that would be applicable and actionable to your entire audience because we all do so many different things but i do think there are some some common or recurring themes and the most important as we've talked about in you know many times in the past i'm a huge advocate for doing what makes sense doing what's makes sense from an engineering perspective and from a biological perspective in then considering the the regulation in in this particular case how how we change it the thing that that bothers me about some folks in this business and certainly not everybody but there are many they seem to think that the letter to file option is a shortcut is an ex, is a is a way of not doing some some basic testing and I, as i said earlier i don't see it that way at all I think the amount of work that we do, and again, this is not a PhD dissertation. In some cases, it might be a very, very small kind of a thing you might be able to do in a couple of days or maybe even a couple of hours, but it's just what you do with that information. Do you keep it internal, mm-hmm. letter to file or note to file, or do you send it out as a special 510K or something else? I'll give right. you a very quick example. Okay. Okay. A catheter company came to me several years ago, long before this guidance came out, and they wanted to do nothing more than move the logo from one side of the hub of the catheter to the other. And now to most people, that would th- that would seem, gee, what a trivial change. You know, why would we have to notify anybody? Why would we have to do any paperwork? Why would we, you know, have to do any testing? Right. But because they were working with me, you know, we did some testing. And again, this is not a lot. But we were able to determine that the seemingly trivial change of moving the location of this logo from one side of the catheter to the other, because marketing was upset when the cardiologists used this catheter, the logo was facing down <laughs> right. and nobody could see it. So that didn't make them happy. Right. But by doing a little bit of testing, we were able to determine that this change did impact the way cardiologists use this device. And as a result could impact safety, efficacy, performance, could change the, the, the risk of the product and so on. And as a result, we did notify FDA. Now, were we required to? That's a judgment call. We were sure. definitely in the gray area. But at the end of the day, whether we take that information and notify FDA or not is a business decision. Some companies as a matter of company policy, no matter what kind of a change they make, will always chip notify the FDA Uh because their attitude is, well, you know, let's not, you know, create any, any doubts here. If there's going to be a problem, let's let them know about it right away. Other companies will take the opposite approach and say, no, let's not notify FDA because after all, why create a problem where a problem doesn't exist? That's a business decision. But at the end of the day, as long as we as engineers and as medical device professionals have done what we think is necessary to do, what we do with that information, I think, you know, as we talked about before is, Mm -hmm. is less important.
1: Yeah, and I want to, I guess, dive into that word notify a bit. Is the only mechanism to notify the FDA a special 510K or a supplemental PMA?
0: is it's there actually, some other
1: mechanism i mean can i just send them a note that says hey guys i'm doing this <laughs> i mean so it's that's it's funny
0: nice. it's funny you mentioned that john i'll give you one example where i have actually created a way to do exactly this in situations where we have changed a medical device but it does not you know, according to the guidance, according to the flowchart, necessarily, you know, require us to go to the FDA, but we are in the gray area. I will go to the FDA, usually in the form of a pre-sub. Okay. And I will say, look, we are not asking you anything. We are not required Mm -hmm. to be here. But in the spirit of you know growing a positive relationship and working together and you know kumbaya kind of a thing <laughs> we are notifying you of this particular change that we've made to our device here is why we've made the change here is the documentation for it here's the testing that we've done to to prove never mind to you to ourselves that this is not going to impact safety, efficacy, performance, but because we are in the gray area and because we do want to be corporate, good corporate citizens and so on, we are, as a matter of professional courtesy, and that's often the phrase that I like to use, as a matter of professional courtesy here letting you know about it. And, you know, at the end of that process, and I've done this several times now because the regulation does not have a formal pathway. There is no specific type of pre sub meeting that you can request to to notify FDA of a change like this. Right. But the regulation does not say that you cannot do this either. Right. So I use this to my advantage. And just like I said earlier, worst case scenario, FDA might say, gee, thanks for letting us know. We think you should, you know, you should do this a little more formally. I say, well, all right, fine. You know, we'll we'll take this information and we'll put it in a special five ten K and we'll have it next week.
1: Right and and so I think that's a key piece of advice uh for the audience today is that sometimes we we hear that term pre submission and we take it literal, meaning that uh, it only applies to devices that haven't got clearance yet but that's
0: that's correct. this is actually a post market <laughs> pre sub meeting
1: <laughs> well i guess in a in a sense it is a pre sub in a way right because you're you're notifying f d a that this is uh this is a change that we're making all right so let's let's keep on the same topic but let's let's dive into maybe an even more gray area that well I've had experience in my prior careers in in this space uh, working in various medical device companies over the years, and that is you know this letter to file concept is embraced adopted there's documentation to support changes and so on and so forth but you know, let's just pick. You know, an, uh, you know, let's use your catheter uh, example as one arbitrary example. You know, we have one change where we move the logo from one side of the hub to the other, and now we make another change because we we had to change the material on the the lure fittings on the extension tubes, and then we have now another change where we I don't know change the the guide wire type. I don't know. I, I can make up, but anyway, what I'm going down this path is we have a number of small changes or or changes where we've evaluated and determined in every individual case where the result is you know appropriate for a letter to file, no new submission, no notification required. How many of those little changes can I make on a product before now it's kind of a major change?
0: That's a wonderful question, John. And
1: quite frankly, that's a it was question- loaded it was a loaded question too. Of, of, of course,
0: I know, I know it was. And that's yet another question that the medical device industry has been struggling with since FDA started regulating medical devices in 1976. As a matter of fact, when I was in FDA just yesterday, I'm down there, as you know, about once a month, sure. I happened to notice there, there used to be for, for many months of this year, a great big ban- banner uh, hanging in the main CDRH building, Building 66, celebrating the 40th anniversary, the 40th birthday of the 510K. Uh, when I went there yesterday, I noticed it's not there anymore. I'm not exactly sure why, but in any event... Um, well, the birthday's over, right? One <laughs> day for a birthday. That's that's correct. <laughs> but in, in any event, you know what you're asking is a, is a very fundamental question. How many changes can you make in an existing medical device? Uh, maybe each of these changes are small enough that you can handle them individually as a letter to file but eventually you're going to come to a point obviously when though all those changes add up to become quite significant where you would have to notify fda perhaps as a special 510k or maybe even it would create an entirely new medical device and the short answer is since we've been playing this game in 1976, there is no short answer. There is no simple answer to that question. Yes, FDA has to try to come out with regulation with guidance on this, but there is no simple answer to that. Right. And by the way, if this phenomenon sounds familiar to you or any of, you, of your audience, uh, and by the way, it should, because this is a spin on predicate creep. Which is, uh, in my opinion, the most legitimate criticism of the entire 510k program, and that is if you you know if you change a medical device and you do a, a, a 510k comparing it to the device from two years ago, and then the next device which compared two years before that, these changes over very short periods of time can be uh, thought of as insignificant. Mm-hmm. But when you start considering all of these changes in the aggregate, Now all of those changes can become very significant. So with regard to your original question, how does a company know? My best advice, and some engineers like this and others don't, but my best advice is to take my same approach, to ask yourself not just this change that you're doing now, but all of the changes that you have done since you last notified the FDA take them all collectively. In other words, you may have made a logo change, you may have made a color change, you may have made a material change, a manufacturing change, all of these changes individually, maybe you feel comfortable handling as a letter to file. But after a few of them, and I would suggest perhaps even incorporating this into your quality system, a requirement after pick a number after three letter to file, for example. Look at all of those changes, not individually, but in the aggregate and see if now that's going to potentially impact the safety, efficacy, performance, if it's going to change the risk and so on. And if you're getting closer and closer to that line where you're not sure, now you might consider going to the FDA, perhaps as this prophylactic, what I would call a post-market pre-sub meeting and (laughs) say, look, You know, we want to just let you know that we've made over the last year since this device came onto the market four changes to our device and individually, they're not they're not significant, but we want to just let you know that we're you know, we know what we're doing. That would be my best general advice. Obviously, if anybody in your audience, you know, has specific situations, I'm happy to drill into those in much more detail. But that would be my best general advice. Is there anything that you would add or differ on that approach, John?
1: Well, I think I think it's a really good idea because I, I think companies are confused may not be the right word, but but I think there are some companies who are legitimately concerned. Like you know, we made this change, we made this change, we made this change, and and we don't really have you know they're, sometimes they're looking to FDA to provide an answer, so to speak. And I think your suggestion is really good. Is like okay, we can look at each change individually but yeah i mean really this this concept that you just described would fit into what i would refer to as product portfolio management you, you or or some others look at it as product management where you look at that product you know oftentimes that's viewed as a, a marketing or a business activity which you know obviously keeping uh, on the the straight and narrow and on the right path from a regulatory perspective is important uh, it's as important as as other aspects of of managing a particular product. So I think as, if we include that, look at you know how is this product doing, and we bring in you know the the performance history from a complaint standpoint and from a customer feedback standpoint, and just use that opportunity to evaluate you know all the changes that we made. I think that could be a good vehicle, and I like the idea of the pre submission. You know you start to make a quote rule in your organization where you get to. Uh, X number of letters to file, and then now that that triggers a post-market pre-submission. To FDA, it's a really good suggestion. Well, so, I'm
0: la- I'm glad you like that idea, John. A quick question, and I know that we're we're getting short on time. We should wrap this up. Sure. But obviously, you're a guru when it comes to quality systems and design controls. Have you seen any anything like that in any of the companies' systems that you've dealt with? Because in my case, most of the companies that I work with, at least before they start working with me, I've never seen any kind of a requirement in there where after X number of letter to files. You need to look at the changes in the in the aggregate to do a, an evaluation. Have you seen that in in companies?
1: You know, I, I have not, Mike, and and I think we're still in this transition period where a lot of companies, when it comes to dealing with with the agency, are still very much kind of don't ask, don't tell <laughs> with with FDA. And and I think you know, I'm seeing a lot of companies start to embrace like that. The pre-sub model is a good example. Some companies have realized how. That invaluable that can be to to you know the direction of of your your devices and your your overall product development strategy so I, I'm really encouraged by some of the behaviors but I think in by and large companies are still very much you know we're going to be hush hush we're gonna see the f d a as an adversary and we're not going to share extra information with them so well that's very unfortunate um, i know i mean it's it is it is it is right now and and you yeah. and I are of course are out there trying to change that and and, you know, by talking about these kinds of topics, you know. It's but one
0: other, one other piece of pragmatic advice I would yeah. give to, to, your, to the audience, and that is if your company goes above and beyond, for example, if your company incorporates the suggestion that John and I have just been talking about, about, for example, adding into your quality system or your design control or wherever put I don't really care, a requirement of after X number of letter to files, we're going to do this evaluation, which, as John and I both said, is not is not um, required under the current regulation perhaps it should I just think it makes sense it's, I yeah. just you know it's what we should do as professional yeah. engineers but when we go to the FDA to tell them I see a lot of companies come to the FDA and say we have a quality system in place it it, it meets the requirements of you know blah 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 with all due respect talk is cheap if we can go to them and say, look, not only do we have these systems in place, but we have gone above and beyond because in this particular case, we recognize this is a weakness in the in the system and we have actually added this requirement in there. This is exactly why, as you and I have talked about in the past, I do not advocate more regulation for yeah. design control and other things because I think it needs to be flexible enough for companies to do yes. what we need to do. Unfortunately, not all companies do
1: it. Right. I, I, I'm with you, Mike. I'm with you, and uh, you know, speaking of anniversaries, and and on the topic of Design Controls, you know, we we missed celebrating the 20th anniversary of of the release of Design Controls. But... You're exactly right. 1997. Maybe yeah. we could still. Uh, well, I guess it's not... About- it was- I think it was, Was it, did it come out in 96 or did it become official in 97? I guess it I, I can't I, remember the exact I seem
0: to remember 97, but I certainly could be all right, wrong. All
1: right, so we're early. We got time. <laughs> we got time. Well, Mike, I appreciate uh, you as always, and I enjoyed this conversation that we had today. And Thanks, I John. There's just one last thing
0: I'd like to yeah. share with your audience very, very quickly, along the lines of what you said at the end there. Don't fear the FDA. <laughs> I am working with so many medical device companies now, including some of the largest device companies on earth. Who, as a matter of corporate policy, have said to their R and D engineers, "Do not change the design or the process used to make your medical device to the point where it would trigger a special 510k or a PMA subdivision. Oh, Only limit those changes to small enough changes that we can handle them as letter to files." <laughs> and as a former as a former R and D engineer myself, this just makes my blood pressure. My oh, goodness. Really- yeah, because talk about hamstringing the the you know I mean call me naive and certainly many people do, but how can anybody argue that this is making the world a better place. Ah. So we should not fear the FDA. Listen, I have a huge respect for the job of the FDA. I will defend them more than anybody else when I think they need to be defended because they do have an awesome responsibility. As I think I've shared with you before, one of my friends who used to be at the agency used to like to say, physicians can kill patients one at a time, but an FDA reviewer can kill patients thousands at a time. Mm -hmm. So have a respect for the FDA. Absolutely. Absolutely. But do not fear them. And certainly, please do not let that fear escalate to the point where it actually prohibits you or impedes you from making changes. Agreed. One of the things that I pride myself on is if a company wants to bring a medical device onto the market, or in this case, if a company wants to change a device that is already on the market, if they can convince me from an engineering and from a biology perspective of what they want to change makes sense, and they've done the testing to show that it's not going to have an impact on safety Performance, risk, and so on and so on. Then don't worry about the regulatory at all. I will get the FDA. I will sell this to the FDA. If it makes sense from an engineering and a biology perspective, we can make the regulatory work. Let's right. not let's stop as an industry using the NFDA is an excuse to yes. us from making better products. I think right. that's that's something that uh, I would like to leave the audience with today.
1: Well, and you know we're going to let that be the final word today. I, I will let the audience know that you know mike and i obviously chat every so often so if there's a topic that that you're really just dying to know more about or want to get some insights from from mike or from me just let me know there's you can always uh, reply uh, and contact either mike or myself you can contact us at greenlight.guru Our website's www.greenlight.guru you can contact mike you can find him best or easiest probably on linkedin mike Drew's D R U E S. Mike is with Vascular Sciences. And again, thank you for being the guest on the Global Medical Device Podcast today, Mike. And folks, design controls, risk management, quality management systems, those are always things that, that we're all dealing with. And as you're developing new devices and launching them into the market and evaluating changes to your products and the impact of those changes, one thing that you need to consider when you're making the changes, in addition to what we've talked about today, is the impact from a design and development standpoint, what verification and validation activities may be required. What, how does this impact form fit and function? What are the risks? And you need a good solution. You need good tools. You need to be able to have visibility of those activities so that you can easily assess the impact of your changes as well. So, Mike, thank you. And audience, keep listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.